2 Kings chapter 9. From time to time, people will ask me, why do you spend so much time in the Old Testament? You know, why, do you, why are you teaching through the book of Kings? Or some of the, we've gone through the book of Leviticus, and we've gone through all the books. And I hope by now that you see how rich it is in studying the Old Testament. For it's in the Old Testament that we get to see so much of the character of God. If you were to remove the Old Testament, all we had was the New Testament, we really wouldn't get the full picture that we have now of who God is. And one of the things that we certainly wouldn't see is how long-suffering God is. Because as we study the Old Testament, as we see how often it seems the nation Israel does the things they're not supposed to do, yet God sticks with them. When I've said many times, I would have forgot about them and started over, it probably would have been the same result, but God has not done that. Instead, he stayed faithful to the nation Israel. Just by way of reminder this evening, the nation Israel had their first king in King Saul. King Saul was followed by King David, and then following King David was King Solomon. During the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, which was the fourth king of Israel, the nation of Israel became divided into two nations. The southern kingdom was made up of the two tribes of Benjamin and Judah. They took on the name Judah. The northern kingdom was the ten, the ten remaining tribes up in the northern kingdom. They would be known as the nation Israel, or as they kept the name Israel. This period of division would last for about 350 years. And during this time of division, the Israel, the northern kingdom, would have 19 kings. And every single one of them would be an evil king. Every single one of them. The southern kingdom, nation of Judah, would have 20 kings, and of their 28 of them would be righteous, would be righteous kings, so the majority of them were not. As we come to chapter 9, we're going to be focusing on a guy named Jehu. He will become the next king of Israel. Uh, remember, uh, Joram or Jeroboam, uh, the son of Ahab, is currently on the throne in Israel. He's currently the one serving there. Ahaziah is the king serving in the southern kingdom of Judah. So currently on the throne, we have Joram or Jehoram on Israel. We have Ahaziah in the southern kingdom. And remember, the kingdoms have kind of intermarried. We've talked about this last week. The families are now related. There's a connection there. And they're not brought together as unified, but they're, they're connected politically in a sense where they're, they're going to try to support each other. In fact, Ahaziah was the grandson of Ahab, and we gave you that family lineage last week. But before we look at chapter 9, before we get in there, I want to remind you of a prophecy that was spoken of by Elijah, not Elisha, Elijah, way back in 1 Kings chapter 21. It was right after uh, Jezebel had had Naboth killed for his vineyard. And remember Ahab wanted, a, wanted the vineyard and, and Naboth said he wouldn't sell it and went home and he pouted like a little girl and he wouldn't eat his food. And Jezebel said, don't worry, I'll take care of it. And she set him up and basically had him stoned. And then Ahab got to go take the vineyard. And Jezebel was a wicked woman, was Ahab's wife. There was a prophecy that was get out, given out there and about, about Ahab, his family, and about Jezebel. So about Ahab, the prophecy said this, the dogs will lick up your blood where they licked the blood of Naboth we saw that one take place in 1 Kings chapter 22. So they told Ahab, because you've done this to Naboth, the dogs are going to lick up your blood at the same place they licked up Naboth's. We saw that prophecy come to fulfillment in 1 Kings 22. But there was also a prophecy about Ahab's family. It said, I will take away your posterity and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. We're going to see that prophecy begin to be fulfilled tonight. But there was also a prophecy there about the woman Jezebel. And about Jezebel, it said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. 
So there was a prophecy that the dogs would actually eat her, speaking of how evil she was. And in that day, if you weren't buried, it was worse than death itself if your body was desecrated. And to have the dogs eat it was far worse than anything else. So the prophecy about Ahab had already taken place. The prophecy about Jezebel will be fulfilled in tonight's study. And the prophecy concerning Ahab's family will begin tonight and continue on through the next chapter into chapter 10. So with that history and that background, let's look at chapter at verse 1 of chapter 9. And Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Get yourself ready. Take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. Now when you arrive at that place, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him rise up from, from among his associates and take him to the inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not delay. The directions here are pretty clear. We are not told who this son of the prophets were. We're not given a name for him here. It's likely this is one of the young prophets from Elisha's school that we read about earlier. And Jewish tradition says his name was Jonah, and he's spoken of again in 1 Kings chapter 20. But we're not sure of that. We just, that's a possibility. So basically what happens is they come to one of the young prophets and says, hey, I've got, to work. I got, work. I got work for you to do. I want you to go find Jehu, take him inside the inner room, and I want you to say, thus saith the Lord. You pour a flask of oil on his head and tell him, I've anointed you king over Israel, and then get out of there as fast as you can. Seems simple enough, right? Remember Jehu was first anointed king by Elijah, way back in 1 Kings chapter 19. And just like David, there's a time span in between there, where he, was, he knew he would be king someday, if he in fact believed that, but then there's this time span of several years that take place between the, and actually between the anointing and actually when he'll become king and when the, God will reveal him as king. The anointing of Jehu shows this fulfillment of the prophecy given by Elijah. And it's interesting, and I love it, when God's word comes to pass. It, 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 Elisha said you'd be king, and now here, after all these years, perhaps Jehu would thought, well, gee, I guess that wasn't true. I knew that man was crazy. But now here comes another prophet or a young prophet and tells him basically the exact same thing. With Jehu becoming king, a new dynasty is about to begin and it's going to end the family line of Ahab or the dynasty that began with Ahab. So let's look what happens. Verse 4. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth-Gilead. And when he arrived there, when he arrived, there were the captains of the army sitting. And he said, I have a message for you, commander. Jehu said, for which one of us? And he said, for you, commander. Then he arose and went into the house. And he poured the oil on his head and said to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab all the males in Israel, both bond and free. So I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. The dogs shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her and he opened the door and he fled 
It's kind of comical, isn't it? The anointing of the king over Israel, it wasn't an established custom. It wasn't something that every king had happened. It didn't take place every single time. It wasn't a rule, so to speak. It was, it was done when circumstances were out of the ordinary or when there might be some question as who was supposed to take the throne. It wasn't something that happened all the time. Anointing with oil, pouring the oil over his head was symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Oil, oil, in the, oil in the scripture is a picture of the Holy Spirit. So it's a picture of the Holy Spirit coming upon him to accomplish something specific. And if you notice in this prophecy, Jehu was anointed with the oil. It represents the power of God coming upon him for a specific mission. What was his mission? We, we read it here. His reign will be focused on one primary task. He's going to exercise judgment on Ahab's family. That's why he's becoming king. The Lord is basically, you know, God is basically, I'm going to use Jehu to wipe out and destroy Ahab's family. Well, if you're just joining us, you might go, well, that's not very nice of God. That doesn't seem very friendly. Well, if you were to go back and study Ahab and Jezebel, you would find out just how against they are at God. How they are, they are worshiping false gods. They're worshiping Baal. And not only are they doing it personally, they have completely led all the people of Israel away from God. So they're responsible of leading people into false worship. And they are extremely evil in killing the prophets of the Lord. And now the Lord says that is enough. These prophecies against Ahab's family and against Jezebel, they're the same things Elijah spoke. It's just a confirmation of something back in 1 Kings 21, right after Naboth was killed. So it's nothing new. It's, it's been out there before. Now, before we go any further, it's interesting. I, I, I always find this interesting. Israel at this point has completely forsaken God. They want really nothing to do with God. They, they've been led far away from God. Yet the amazing thing is God has not forsaken Israel. Think about that. Israel has left. They're worshiping false gods. They're worshiping anything and everything. They're worshiping just like the Canaanites. And the God that brought them into the land, the God that gave them the land, has not forsaken them. Even God has remained faithful and they are unfaithful. They are committing adultery against God by committing idolatry and worshiping false gods. Yet God has remained faithful to them and he will do so. He was still working in their midst. He was still bringing, putting a king in power to try to bring them back to himself. He would appoint the king as necessary, a godly king to bless the obedient nation, and he would appoint an evil or a wicked king to curse a disobedient nation. He would put on the throne who needed to be there. But God had not given up on them. He hasn't given up on them. Instead, he continues to work in their lives to bring them to the place of repentance. He'll take them all the way to destruction and captivity if necessary. But the goal is to bring them back to himself. Have you ever felt like God's given up on you? You ever felt like I've gone too far? Maybe I've pushed the barrier too far. You, no, you, no, you don't understand what's in my background. No, you don't understand what I did this past week. You don't understand how far I've blown it. You don't understand. You know, no, no, God, God had to have given up on me by now. God, God certainly couldn't, couldn't possibly. This is why it's important we study the Old Testament. If God hasn't given up on the nation of Israel by now, I think you're safe. You're pretty good. He's not going to give up on you. These examples on Israel are in the scriptures to show us that God is long-suffering, that he is faithful, and he does not give up on us. Yet he'll take us to any circumstance that we need to try to bring us back to him. He'll continue to work and guide our life. Instead of thinking God's given up, we must realize that we've drifted. It's not him that's given up. It's us that have given up on him, usually. 
You see, when we find ourselves separate from God, it's not because God has left us. It's not because God has forsaken you. It's because you've probably walked away or slipped away from the Lord because you've allowed something to creep in. You've allowed some compromise somewhere in your life. You see, what we should be doing instead of running away from God is running to God, allowing him to deal with us, repenting of our sins and turning back to the Lord. It's an amazing thing to me that although the nation of Israel had completely forsaken God, God had not forsaken them. That's the God we serve. After accomplishing his mission, the prophet fled, just like he was told. And Jehu goes back out to his captains to see what they have to say. Verse 11. Then Jehu came out to the servants of his master, and one, of, and one said to him, Is all well? Why did this madman come to you? And he said to them, You know the man and his babble. And they said, A lie. Tell us now. So he said, Well, thus and thus he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then each man hastened to take up his garment and put it under him on the top of the steps, and they blew the trumpets, saying, Jehu is king. You see, when he came out, the guys want to know what happened. Who's the, what's the crazy? Did you notice they called the prophet of God a what? A madman. He's a crazy man. He's a madman. Did you see Jehu's response in front of his buddies? You know the man and his babble. You know that crazy talk that Christian guy's doing. We know all of his lies. Isn't it true the world always sees a man or woman who is fully devoted to God as being a little crazy? They look at you and go, you're crazy. It doesn't make any sense. But it doesn't have to make sense to you. They see us a little crazy, but they just don't understand, do they? They just don't understand that it's the Lord, it's the relationship, and he's just simply being obedient. Don't be surprised as a Christian if you're treated a little bit differently. I can remember as I became a Christian, I began to stand for what I thought was right. I stopped getting invited to the parties. I stopped getting invited after work to go out to the bars. I stopped, they stopped, it wasn't that they, they were, they were, they stopped being nice to me. It was just they stopped inviting me. They didn't want me around anymore because I wasn't into what they were doing. I wasn't going to do it. So that shouldn't surprise us. Besides, if we were to shy away from that little bit of persecution, we probably wouldn't go very far with the Lord at all, would we? Who cares about a little persecution like that? That's not really persecution at all. It's just the people thinking we're a little crazy. Here's Jehu standing before his friends. What's dripping down his head? Olive oil. He's been anointed with oil. His head is soaking wet in oil. Who's the crazy man? What did they say? What's going on? He's got his head covered in oil. They're laughing and kind of poking fun. And Jehu tells them what the man of God says. And they're kind of laughing. Thus and thus he spoke to me saying. And all of a sudden Jehu says this. Thus says the Lord. I think that got their attention. Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. And upon hearing that news, what did they do? They took up their garments and blew their trumpets. And they said, Jehu is king. Jehu is king. Perhaps it was done in jest. But I believe they realized at that point they took it seriously. Because it was God's plan unfolding. And at that very moment, God was able to put the people behind Jehu that he needed to accomplish his plan. You see, they thought it was a joke, but they were still being used by the hand of God, even though they didn't know it, even though they didn't necessarily have a, uh, they weren't serving God. They hadn't made a decision. I want to follow the God of Israel. Now, all of a sudden, God is going to use them to judge the house of Ahab. The act of spreading out the garment, the reason they did that, that's a, that, was a, that was one of recognition. It was one of loyalty and one of promise and support. 
So there on the steps, as Ahab declares that he's going to be the next king of Israel, standing there with the head dripping with oil, they go, we got your back. We're with you on this. Wow. Talk about life changing in a moment, huh? Here it, here it comes. And he's probably wondering, I remember what that prophet Elijah said. That was a long time ago he said that I'd be king. And now this guy just said I'm going to king. And now all these commanders are swearing their loyal to me, loyalty to me. They're all saying they've got my back. They're with me on this. Let's look at what happens. Verse 14. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram, also known as Jehoram. Joram had been defending Ramoth Gilead, he and all Israel, against Haziel, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him when he fought with Haziel, king of Syria. And Jehu said, If you are so minded, let, one, let no one leave or escape from the city to go and tell it in Jezreel. Verse 16, So Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram was laid up there, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. So after plotting and planning, Jehu sets off to confront Joram. He's going to go talk to him. He's going to go see him, and they're on the way. And remember, King Ahaziah from Judah, he's up there visiting him as well. We saw that at the end of the last chapter. He's up there. So there they are in Jezreel. The two kings are there together. Uh, Joram is injured. He's recovering from his injuries. And now here comes Jehu. He's on the, on the move. He's got his chariot. He's ready to go, and he's coming up against them in Jezreel. And now verse 17, now a watchman stood on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu. He didn't know it was Jehu yet, but he sees the company of Jehu as he came, and he said, I see a company of men. And Joram, the king, he says, well, get a horseman and send to him and meet them, and let him say, is it peace? So what they would see is there's a watchman up on the tower. He's looking out. He sees a company of men coming his way. He says, king, there's a whole bunch of people coming this way. King says, all right, get a horseman, get him out there quick, find out what their intentions are. Find out what's going on. So they send the horseman out there. Horseman goes out there. Find out, is, are they coming in peace? Verse 18, so the horseman went to meet him and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, what have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported saying, the messengers went to them, but it's not coming back. And the king says, send out a second horseman. Verse 19, he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu answered, what have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman who's back on the wall reports it again, saying he went up to them and is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Does anybody recognize you by your driving? He's on his horse and chariot, and he's, got, he's known to be a little bit crazy. That's what they say. When the watchman sees the man approaching, he sends out the horseman. They don't return. The second horseman comes back. He doesn't return. By now, they're thinking something's going on. They look out, and they go, this guy's driving like he's nuts. This has got to be Jehu. He's the only one that we know that would drive like that. Then Joram, with no other alternative, in verse 21, he says this. Make ready. Get ready for war. Make ready. Get ready. And his chariot was made ready. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot, and they went out to meet Jehu and met him on the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now it happened when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? Please notice a couple of things. When the watchmen came out to meet him, what did they do? 
They jumped right into line with Jehu. Perhaps they were scared of dying, whatever the reason was. Perhaps they saw the look in his eyes and said, this guy's serious. They jumped right into line with him. And now, as King Joram comes out to meet him, he asks the question, he says, is it peace, Jehu? But it's important to note where this confrontation is taking place. I don't know if you caught it in there, confrontation is taking place on the very plot of ground that Ahab had taken from Naboth. It's the very ground that Naboth had once owned. It's the very vineyard. It's the same place that Naboth owned that Ahab said, I want that ground. Remember, Naboth's vineyard was next door to King Ahab. And just as a reminder of the story, Ahab went out to Naboth and said, hey, I'd like to buy your ground. I'll, I'll give you either a better vineyard somewhere else or I'll pay you for what it's worth. And Naboth said, no way. This land came to us from the Lord. It's, it's an inheritance from my family. And then, and then Ahab went home and he laid in his bed and he looked the other way and he wouldn't eat. And his wife said, what's wrong? And, she said, and he said, I want, the, I want the land. And then the wicked Queen Jezebel hired some scoundrels, the scripture tells us, to falsely accuse Naboth and they end up stoning him. And they end up taking Naboth's land. This is an act of God's providence that Jehu meets the house of Ahab at the scene of the crime, if you will. At the scene of the crime. So Jehu, are you coming in peace? Look what Jehu answers there at the end of verse uh, 22. So he answered, what peace? As long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many. Or perhaps he said it like this, what peace? As long as the harlots of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many. Could you feel the contempt in his voice when he says that? There's no peace here. There's, there's no peace. Are you crazy? How can there be peace with God when his laws are being broken and his, and his people are being led astray and they're worshiping false gods? There's, no, I'm not coming in peace. Just look what your mother Jezebel has done to this country. Just look at this mess that she's made. You see, Jehu, as he approaches... He wasn't filled, his mind wasn't filled with thoughts of political gain. He wasn't thinking, I want to be king. He was responding to what the Lord had called him to do. The Holy Spirit had come upon him. That was the anointing, and now the Lord's guiding him to do these very things. He's only accomplishing what he's accomplishing under the power of the Holy Spirit. Not that he wasn't a skilled marksman and everything else, but it was God's power that was allowing him to do that. He was an executor of divine judgment against the house of Ahab, and he was starting here. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and his mission was to execute judgment on Ahab's house. After all, it's why he was anointed. That's what he, that's what he was anointed for. At that very moment, Joram, or Jehoram, what does he realize? This is not a peaceful visit. Uh-oh, I am in trouble. We have big problems here, my friend. Big problems. Verse 23, Jehoram turned around, and he fled. Turned around and fled. And he said to Ahaziah, treachery, Ahaziah. In other words, he's going to kill us. Get out of here. Get away from him. They thought they were going to be the two kings coming together unified. And it turns out they're the ones running. Verse 24, now Jehu drew his bow with his full strength. And he shot Jehoram between his arms. And the arrow came out his heart. And he sank down in his chariot. Then Jehu said to Bidkar, his captain, pick him up. Throw him into the tract of field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I were riding together behind Ahab, his father, that the Lord laid this burden upon him. Surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this plot, says the Lord. Now therefore take and throw him on the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. Jehoram is shot and killed. 
and he's dumped onto the very land which he took through murder off of Naboth, just like the Lord had said through the prophet Elijah. I am sure that Jehu was an excellent marksman. I'm sure he was a good shot with the bow, but I also have no doubt that it was God's hand that was guiding his hand, as well as the arrow as it landed where it needed to land it to take out, to take, him, to take Jehoram out. Now, it had been about 12 years in time frame since Naboth had been killed. It's been about 12 years. So about 12 years before this is, is when the whole thing happened with Naboth. Why did it take so long? Why, why, why wouldn't God just execute judgment right there? Why wouldn't he just send everything down and just wipe them all out and be done with it? Why did he wait 12 years? By now, Ahab is, is gone. Jezebel's probably forgot about it. It's not even a big, the whole, it's not, it's not even, it's, it's, what do you think about 12 years ago? What happened 12 years ago in your life that was important? Maybe if there was a big thing, maybe it happened, but most of us, we don't spend time thinking about what happened 12 years ago. It's, it's out of our mind. It's out of, it's past. So why would God twa- wait 12 years to vindicate Naboth? I told you God's long-suffering. I believe he was given the family time to repent. I believe that he was given, given, he gave them 12 years to say, all right, we're, we realize we were wrong. We did this. We made a mistake. Um, we just, it, it's been 12 years. We need to repent of this. Listen carefully. Sin has no statute of limitations. The sins that you commit don't expire with a statute of limitations like the crimes that somebody would commit would expire over a certain amount of time. Time does not heal your sin with God. You may have forgotten about it. You may have moved on, but God has not forgotten about it. It's still there unless you're a believer. Don't think the sins of your childhood or of your younger life, or forgotten or gone simply because they're overshadowed by your current life. Don't think they're gone. They're, they're not. They're, they're still there. You, you might have more recent sins, but they're there. Listen carefully. If you want to resolve your sins with the Lord, if you want to resolve your sins, it's a matter of repentance and not ignorance. It's a matter of repenting from them and not ignoring them. There's a saying that says time, has a, time heals all wounds. Time does not take care of someone's sins. They're going to be out there forever unless you repent before the Lord. And then he can heal you of them. And then he tells us he'll take your sins and he'll throw them into the depths of the ocean. He tells us he'll take them, make them as far as from the east is to the west. He says, I will choose to remember them no more. Not that he forgets them, but he chooses to remember them no more to the believer. That's what he's saying. It's not, but in our life, in our hearts, oftentimes we, oh, it's way in the past. Oh, I don't remember what I did when I was a teenager. I don't remember what I did. That's so long ago. That doesn't really matter. Listen, if you haven't repented before Jesus Christ, it all still matters. Well, my, 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 well I've been a good person for the last 10 years. I don't care. They're still, they still matter unless they're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Once they're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, then they don't matter anymore. But until that happens, until you come, I'm a believer on Jesus Christ, forgive me for my sins, which is when you get saved, I will now live for you. That's when they're covered. That's when they don't matter anymore but I've been a good person. What's good? But I, you know, I've done more good than I've done bad. Says who? What's your definition of good? Who gets to decide what's good and what's not? Well, I do. No, you don't. The Bible tells us. You see, the, the whole idea here is, is that sin doesn't expire before God. It has to be covered by the blood of Christ to be dealt with. There's no other way. Time does not heal sin with God. 
You ever had Satan come and talk to you about something you've done in the past? You ever have him try to drag something up and try to remind you of something that you did? And, and maybe, you, maybe and he wants to bring it and he wants to tell you things like, well, you're not a very good Christian. You're, 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 you're just, no, no Christian would. God can't forgive something like that. That's not true. God's capable of forgiving all of our sins, except for the one which is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is the rejection of what the Holy Spirit is testifying, which is the Holy Spirit's testifying of Jesus Christ. So as long as you can go before the Lord and repent, those sins are forgiven, and you don't have to believe the lie that Satan wants you to drag up and push them back in front of your mind again. You have the ability to push them out of your mind and not dwell on them any longer, knowing that I'm going to hold on to the promises of God so when Satan starts to drag that thing up, you can go, no, no, my sins, it says the Lord chooses to remember my sins no more. It says my sins are as far from the east as to the west. That's what the scriptures tell us once we become believers. That's, that's up to us. Once we've received the gift of forgiveness, don't allow Satan to take you back to your past. And if, in fact, you do find yourself dwelling on the past and you feel like you're being drawn in by him, what do you simply remind him of? His future. Because you can go to the book of Revelation and find out he's headed for the lake of fire. And if you're a believer, you're not. Don't listen to him. Don't believe the lie of the enemy. He's known as a father of all lies. The father of all lies. Don't believe those lies. Instead, grab on and hold on to the truths of God's word to carry you through those difficult circumstances and those difficult situations. But always remember, if you're not a believer, time doesn't heal those sins just because they've gone away or because they've left your mind. That's still before the Lord. And someday, if you're not a believer, you will give an account for them coming forward at the white throne judgment. All right. After killing Jehoram, Jehu turns his sights to Ahaziah of Judah. Look at verse 27. But when Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the road to Beth Hagon. So Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also in the chariot. And they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is by Ibelim. Then he fled to Megiddo and he died there. And his servants carried him into the chariot, in the, in the chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah became king over Judah. Ahaziah was headed down south. He was warned to run. He took off running about halfway between Jezreel and Samaria when he was, it's when he was hit. Looking for a place to hide out, he turned towards Megiddo where he eventually dies. Another member of the house of Ahab has been perished at the hand of Jehu. The Lord is no doubt using him to execute judgment on the house of Ahab, very, very clearly. Now that, now that Ahaziah is dead, Jehu is going to turn his attention to Jezebel. I'm going to go see Jezebel. going to pay a visit to Jezebel. Look at verse 30. Now when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window. So hearing Jehu's on the way, what does she do? She puts her makeup on and does her hair. She's so vain that she, she, I'm gonna get, i got to get dressed for the occasion. So she does her hair, she puts her makeup on, and she looks through the window at him. She looks through the window, and she says to him in verse 31, then as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? Now, this comment that she makes, it was a judgmental comment. It was filled with hatred, and it was also filled with sarcasm. Why did she call him Zimri? What's the whole Zimri thing? Zimri was the man who murdered a previous king of Israel named Baasha. That was Zimri. Zimri, Zimri was that man. 
But there's also an implied threat here. So she, in other words, she's saying to, to Jehu, oh, are you just like Zimri? You're going to murder, you're going to murder a, a king of Israel? But the implied threat here is this. It was Ahab's father, Omri, who was the one that killed Zimri. Let me say it again. <laughs> Zimri had murdered a previous king of Israel called Baasha. Uh, Ahab's, uh, Ahab's father, Omri, is the one that killed Zimri. So in a sense, what she's saying to him is... The house of Ahab is going to stand and you're going to be the one killed. Mm -hmm. Just like it happened the last time. Mm -hmm. Our dynasty will continue. You're going to be wiped out here. That's exactly what she says to him. Bold. As she looks down at him through the window, she's got her makeup on and she's got her eyes done. Verse 32, he looked up at the window and he said this, who is on my side? Who? So two or three eunuchs looked out at him. So what he's asking, he's standing below the window. Jehu yells up, who is on my side? And all of a sudden, a couple of guys come to the window and they look down. Like, we are. We're on your side. We're here. These are her servants. These are the people that would have been, would have been waiting on her. They're her. They were made eunuchs. They were castrated so they could be her servants. That's what's the purpose of that. So they're her servants. They probably didn't like her very much. And they, so here comes Jehu. Who's on my side? We'll help you out. What do you need, Jehu? Verse 32, or verse 30. Uh, Three, then he said, throw her down. So they threw her down. <laughs> and some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. Wow. Talk about a way to go. At least she got dressed for the occasion. At least she would looked good for a moment on the way down, maybe, because it wasn't long before we read it's a pretty gross, grotesque thing that's taking place there. Her people turned on her in an instant. Why? Because the Spirit of God was at work. Because the house was being judged. The messengers turned. Now her people are turning. Jehu says, throw her down. They say, okay, out the window she goes. Let's see if she can fly. Didn't work out so good for her. Her own servants threw her down. Verse 34, and when he had gone in, he ate and he drank. So Jehu goes, whew, all this killing, I'm tired. I'm hungry. Go in and get something to eat. And then he said... Go see to this accursed woman and bury her, for she, for she was a king's daughter. In other words, all right, I know she's out there. I know we ran over her with the horses, and I know she's, I know she's dead. Just, she's a king's daughter. Let's just give her a proper burial. Just, just go out there and bury her, would you? So they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. There wasn't much left of her. After a good meal, Jehu had given the command to bury Jezebel, but there was nothing left. Verse 36, therefore they came back and they told him. And he said, this is the word of the Lord. Just like God had said it would happen. This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah, the Tishbite, saying, on the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the corpse of Jezebel shall be as refuse on the surface of the field in the plot of Jezreel, so that they shall not say, here lies Jezebel. In other words, you can't go visit her grave. It doesn't exist anywhere. I like it. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Just like Elijah said back in 1 Kings chapter 21. Exactly what he said. Just like the prophet said. And then, and then the guy that poured oil on my head earlier. Yeah, that, that, the, the young kid. Yeah, he said the same thing. It's happening just like it's been said twice. It's just like he said. And the dogs, they, they, they did exactly what, what they said they were going to do. Listen carefully. The word of the Lord will always come to pass. 
that's good news for you. You know why? It means you can hold on to the promises of God and you can hold on to the word of the Lord and you don't have to doubt that it's going to come to pass. When we study these Old Testament scriptures, you've probably been through Kings and we've seen the word of the Lord come to pass how many times? Over and over and over and over again. And you go, Rob, you told us that last week or the week before. It, that's because it's so important for us to realize. Because oftentimes we can know that in our mind, but the question is, do you believe in your heart that those promises of God are going to last? Do you believe in your heart that they're going to come true? When you're experiencing an attack from the enemy, when you're going through a difficult time and you quote that scripture, do you really believe that that word from the Lord is going to last, that's going to come true? I know it's a point we make over and over and over again, but the word of the Lord in your life, it's what you hold on. It's the only thing that will last forever. It's not, it's not, it's not going to change the word of the Lord will go on into eternity. The same things we're learning about God here will be the same things we know about God when we get to eternity. We, we might know more, but we're learning the truths about him now. It won't change. It'll come to pass. It will come to pass. I believe that we should take notice and confirm in our hearts. We should settle in our hearts. We should decide in our hearts. I believe the word of the Lord is going to come to pass. For if we can't believe that it's going to come to pass, it's nothing more than a suggestion book for you. It means nothing. It really means, if you really don't believe this is God's word and that it's going to come to pass, it's nothing more than a book of ideas or a book of principles to live by. It, the, the, the truths mean nothing. And you live going, well, it might work. It might not work. It could work. It might not work. And you look at all this stuff and you go, why all the, the gore and the heads and the feet and the hands? And why, why is all this stuff happening? Because the promises of God are true. Because they rejected following God and led a whole nation after them. And now God's bringing his sovereign judgment upon them. That's why it's happening that way. Why do we have to read about it? Because we need to know that God hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you choose not to follow God, there's going to be cursings that come along with your life as well. That's why we study it. That's why we read it this way. The promises of God are true. and They're going to come to pass. There's three very important principles that we covered tonight, and we covered them rather quickly. And I just want to remind them, or repeat them to remind you of them. Number one, although Israel had forsaken God, God has not forsaken Israel. Although you may feel at times in your life that God has forsaken you, you can come back to this area of Scripture, mark it in your Bible, that shows that God does not forsake those that he loves. God will not forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you, the Scripture tells us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The other thing you can note that we've covered tonight is time does not heal sin with God. It might leave your mind, you might forget about it, but it's still out there. Until your sins are covered by the blood of Christ, they are still counted against you. And when they are covered by the blood of Christ, it's not that they're gone away, they're still there. The penalty for them has just been served. It wasn't like God said, well, then I'm just going to overlook those sins. They, they, don't, they didn't really cost anything. Those are the sins that you and I commit that Jesus died on the cross for. He, he paid the penalty for them. They're still there, but now the penalty is, they can't be held against you because the crime, the time has been done for the crime, so to speak. It's been, he, he's done that. And number three, the word of God will come to pass. The word of God will come to pass. You can bet on it. We're going to see it time and time again as we look through the Old Testament. It's not the first time you're going to see that point come out. And it should be begin to substantiate in your mind, God's word is true. It's going to come to pass. When God says that I'm going to bring judgment upon a family because of the way they're acting, it's going to come to pass. But then he waits 12 years to do it. Why 12 years? 
so they could bring him to a place of repentance. I believe any moment before he died, whether it be Ahab or Jezebel, if they had fallen on their face before the Lord and repented of their sins, none of this would have happened to them. It's their own choice. It's their own doing. They had the ability to choose that. They, they didn't have to. They could, look at, they could look out at their life and go, look what I did. I made a mistake. Lord, forgive me. I've, 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 led all this, I've led all these people astray. But they didn't. Instead, they cursed God and they killed the prophets of God, wanting nothing to do with God. And God said, that's fine. That's fine. I'll harden your heart just like you've hardened your heart. And now here comes my judgment against you. Although Israel had forsaken God, God had not forsaken Israel. Time does not heal sin with God, only the blood of Christ does. And the word of God will come to pass. The Bible tells us so. And we see it happen over and over again.